to more than a dozen murders across the country. He was a serial killer who would strike randomly. He was just able to slip under the radar, which I think really made it very difficult for law enforcement uh, to catch him. Angel Resendez, the railroad killer, was linked to as many as 15 murders, several right here in Texas. But one woman survived and is sharing her story of survival. I was I was saying my last prayer and, and was ready for, I was going to die as well. I mean, I thought that's what was going to happen. This is Texas Crime Stories, The Will to Live. In 1997, Holly Dunn was enjoying her life as a college student at the University of Kentucky. But the summer of that year, everything changed. On August 29, 1997, Holly and her boyfriend Christopher Mayer were walking home alongside some railroad tracks in Lexington, Kentucky. Out of nowhere, a man who had been hiding behind an electrical box jumped out and attacked Holly and Christopher. Christopher died right there alongside those tracks after their attacker dropped a 52-pound rock on his head. Holly was tied up, severely beaten, and raped. Here's how Holly remembered that moment. I actually said my last prayer. Um, I was, I, I knew that, I had knew in my heart that Chris had died. Um, so I, I was, I was saying my last prayer and, and was ready from, I was going to die as well. I mean, I thought that's what was going to happen. But that didn't happen. The attacker left thinking he had killed Holly, but she was able to gain consciousness and find her way to a nearby home where 911 was called. Holly survived, but what she endured would stay with her for the rest of her life. Later, she would find out that the man who attacked her and Christopher was a serial killer, Angel Resendez, also known as the Railroad Killer. Did you know that one in five people live with a mental illness in the United States? I am one of these people. Hi, my name is Tally Dolge, and I could not be more excited to bring to you our new mental health and wellness podcast with KSAT called From Living in Silence to Living Out Loud. Each month, we will be bringing together community leaders, experts, and people who are living every day with a mental illness to discuss various mental health and wellness topics. This podcast is designed to continue to open the conversation. Together, we will explore these brave, resilient, and life-changing stories. We can't wait to have you join us. Releasing on all podcast platforms and on KSAT's YouTube page in 2023. Okay, well, this is uh, Texas Crime Stories. If you're joining us for the very first time, I'm Lee Waldman. And I'm Erica Hernandez. As you can tell, I'm just getting my voice back. So Lee's doing a lot of the talking this episode, which is totally okay. And Erica did most of the research for this. (laughs) But this is a very interesting case because it affected not just Texas, 
but a lot of other states. A lot of other states where this person would flock to railroads and people's bodies would be found alongside them. And this was a person who seemed to attack at random, had no method to his madness, and just really was a reign of terror across several states. Yeah, so his name was, as we just said, Angel Resendez. He was suspected in as many as 24 murders across the U.S. and Mexico in the 90s. And at the time of his arrest in July 1999, he was suspected in nine murders near railroad tracks in Texas, Kentucky, and Illinois. He would confess to many more before his execution. Almost at least 15 more murders. And the reason we bring this case up is because, according to him and to some research, those murders actually started right here in San Antonio. Which is just a wild fact that this person started here and then his reign of terror took him to several different states. And if we want to talk about that first victim, just quickly, in March of 1986, Jane Doe, Jane Doe was shot four times with a 38 caliber gun. Her body was dumped in an abandoned farmhouse. And Resendez later shared that he met the woman at a homeless shelter. He then shot her and killed her for disrespecting him. That happened in Bear County. Yeah, and then her alleged or supposed boyfriend was the next victim whose body was never found. And then that third victim in 1991, Michael White, he was bludgeoned to death with the brick and found in the front yard of an abandoned downtown home here in San Antonio. And Resendez claimed that he killed White because he was homosexual. So it's just he didn't really have a lot of method or reasoning why he did what he did, but it seemed like explosive anger that this person had. And you actually had a conversation with a forensic psychologist, Dr. John Delatore, our homeboy in this podcast. <laughs> He's joined this before. He has great insight from his own research, was able to tell us what he thought about the case. How do we police miles upon miles upon miles of railroad tracks to find uh, essentially a needle in a stack of needles. A very unique case, a very complicated case that took a long time to really get everything that they needed to get to, to find out who this guy was. And it really was just really some strokes of luck uh, to, to figure it out. So we get some, some good insight there from Dr. John Delatore talking about um, some strokes of luck to find this person. And it's a good thing that police did because it begs the question a person who's committing acts like this doesn't really show a whole lot of sympathy for his victims or any remorse for what he's done uh, he probably would go on to continue doing this if police hadn't have inter intervened and they were such random attacks there was no synchrony in how he did things and seeing how holly and christopher what they went through just another random attack and she described to you some of the injuries that she experienced during that attack. So I had a broken eye socket, a broken jaw. They never found what he hit me with, um, but I had a broken eye socket, broken jaw. And then I think I put my hand up to block. Uh, my, my hand was all swollen. I think he had actually hit my hand. He hit me in my face. I had like scratches on my face. Like it was something like a board that he hit me with. Um, and then I think I turned over and he hit me, I don't know, five or six times in the back of my head. And I still have like scars. I mean, I still don't have all the feeling in the back of my head, which is crazy to think 25 years later. And I still don't have, you know, all the feeling in my head from those scars. Um, but the broken eye socket, there was nothing they could do for it. The broken jaw, they had to wire my mouth shut. 
Um, and then I had to put some scar gel stuff on my face to try to get the scars to go away. And they stapled um, my my cuts in the back of my head shut. Now, can you think 25 years later and you're still dealing with those injuries? She is literally lucky to be alive. Absolutely. And I'm sure after hearing more about the path of destruction he left behind in several states, she probably feels even more lucky that she was able to go home to her family at the end of the day. Uh, unfortunately, her boyfriend didn't survive that attack, but the physical scars that healed from that day, the mental scars are something I'm sure she still deals with. I'm sure she still has triggers that, that spark bringing her back to that same point in time over and over again. Hopefully she's gotten some, some help with that mental scarring she has as well. She talked about a little bit about having survivor's guilt and how a lot of the victims' families helped her get through that because they didn't want her to feel that. That's, I mean, it's a beautiful thing that she has, that support system uh, to lean on people. And we talked briefly about no remorse from Resendez, and that's something you spoke with Dr. Don Delatore. Yeah, he talks more about his mental state. Not having evaluated him, uh, I, I don't know if he was actually dealing with delusions. However, thinking about this is not someone who stalked, right? This isn't someone like Jeffrey Dahmer or something. Like, he didn't stalk these people. I think he gets off, right? He's riding the train, doing whatever it is that he's doing. But the one thing that I know was consistent as, after he got caught was these these ideas about him being an angel and there being evil in the world. So it's certainly possible that he had delusional thinking. It doesn't quite explain the behaviors that he's done. You know, he, um, I mean, not to be graphic, but he uses, you know, blunt instruments to, you know, to, to really do damage to, to these individuals. He covers them up with a blanket. Some people suggest that that's, you know, evidence of the guilty mind. I, I don't necessarily know that that to be true. Um, he goes through and gets all of their food, right? Eats of their food and steals their stuff and leaves their driver's licenses out, you know, together on a table, easily to be found. I think he does that because of the damage that he does to their heads. Um, I, I think he left them out so that, you know, whoever found them would know who it was. Um, I, I don't know. He's he, he's a he's a he's a unique guy to be sure. So Resendez gets caught, goes to trial in 1998. He goes to trial, and that's for the murder of Houston physician Claudia Benton. And we have some information here about Dr. Benton. She was a pediatric neurologist. She was raped, stabbed, and bludgeoned repeatedly with a statue inside of her home in West University Place, Texas. And her Jeep was later found here in San Antonio, and Resendez's fingerprints were on that steering column. And that's how they ultimately were able to catch him with those DNA, the fingerprints. He left stuff behind. And as the years went on, the technology improved. And his defense in all of this, after being linked to Dr. Benton's murder with his fingerprints, um, his defense was he was schizophrenic and couldn't tell right from wrong. I don't know if I buy that. I don't know if I buy that either, because I would understand it more so if this was a one-off and he did this and he couldn't tell right from wrong in that moment. It was diagnosed schizophrenic and he he had suffered with treatment and, and then had never gone back to seek more help. Maybe got off some medication he was on. And it was a one-off and he couldn't tell right from wrong. This is 24 lives that he ended. 
I don't really believe that he didn't know right from wrong. And the jury didn't believe it either. They found him guilty. Holly Dunn testified. And this was the first time that she saw him in person. Here's how she described that moment. You know, I didn't actually look at him. My um, prosecuting attorney was really good. And she was like, you know, look at me, look at your family sitting behind me. Don't look at him. He'll be off to your left hand side. And so I really turned off my peripheral vision. I mean, I did not look at him the entire time I was giving my testimony. Um, but they got to that point in the trial when they say, is the person who attacked you in the courtroom today? And, you know, I had never actually been in a courtroom. I didn't know that they actually said this. I thought it was just on TV, uh, but they did say it. And I, so I knew, I knew it was his trial. So I'm like, yes, I still hadn't looked at him at this point. And they said, could you please tell us what he's wearing? And I'm like, oh man, you know, like then I knew I had to look at him. And when I looked at him, he had like a smirk on his face and his eyes looked black and I literally almost fainted. I, my hearing started going inside my head. I, it started, everybody, everything started to sound like echoes and I started to break out into a cold sweat. And I just remember saying he's wearing a white button down shirt. And then everybody started to realize that I was about to lose it because I think I was even probably emotionally upset. I mean, I, I don't even, I don't remember like how I was. Emo I mean, I'm sure I was crying, but like, I don't know if I was like hyperventilating or what I was doing to show everybody that this was about to happen. So, I mean, the, the judge was really fast and he was like, okay, do you have any more questions? No defense. Do you have any questions? No, they did not question me. And the bailiff like picked me up and carried me out of the courtroom. And it's just amazing that I didn't faint. Cause I mean, I was about, I think as close as you can get to fainting. Um, so that was my experience in seeing him again. It was, it was awful. Yeah. I just, I mean, we talk so many times about how, Families of victims are their hugest advocates. But I think Holly in this, I mean, her strength, these not even that many years later, seeing this man who had killed her boyfriend in front of her, who had sexually assaulted her, who attempted to kill her, to be able to face him in court and, and speak your truth and speak to who you know he is because you know what happened to you. I can't even imagine what that's like. She talked how hard it was. She couldn't even look him in the eye because she was having like a panic attack about that moment. And nobody would blame her for that. Not at all. Uh, Resendez was ultimately given the death penalty. And he was then executed on June 27th, 2006. And he had some... He had some things to say. We know that when someone is facing the death penalty, they're given the chance to have their last words. And Erica, you research what those last words were. Um, it's a final statement here. In his final statement, Resendez said, I want to ask if it is in your heart to forgive me. You don't have to. I know I allow the devil to rule my life, but I just ask you to forgive me and ask the Lord to forgive me for allowing the devil to deceive me. I thank God for having patience in me. I don't deserve to cause you pain. You do not deserve this. I deserve what I'm getting. He was then pronounced dead at 8.05 p.m. It sounds like he came to peace. I cause people pain. This is what I get. Which is good. You don't see, uh, not everyone who's facing the death penalty and who is sentenced to death finds that peace, finds any kind of accountability for what they did. So I'm glad he was able to come to terms with, yeah, I am a monster. I deserve this. As for Holly, because I feel like she is the story. Holly is the story. She had a hard recovery. 
And yeah, she prides herself on being a survivor, not on a victim. And in 2008, she founded Holly's House. It's a child and adult advocacy center for victims of uh, crimes, and it's helped thousands of those victims. Yeah, it's 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 grown. She talks about that growth right now. Growth that has happened in the past 14 years because they've gone so much into the trying to prevent these crimes from happening, teaching, you know, in the schools. And um, it's gone so much beyond just what we had created Holly's House for in the first place. We always wanted, I think, um, you know, we've had the same mission all along. We knew that that prevention was going to be part of our process. We just didn't know exactly how that was going to happen back when we first opened our doors. Now, Holly also speaks about her experience and has written a book. It's called Soul Survivor. Yeah, the fact that she was able to write this down, take a moment that turned her, and I know she doesn't like the word victim, but a moment that could have turned her into a victim, she took the power back. She says, this is my story. This is not a story that he gets to hold. It's her story. And I think that's her reclaiming her power that was almost stripped of her in that moment. She says, you know, not anymore. You're not going to have this power over me. She regains that power every time she shares her story and and talks about what, what she endured and what she survived. Even in the hospital after the attack happened, I was thinking like, you're either going to crawl into a hole and not come out again, or you're going to do something. Every day was different. It was, but it was making that choice every day to do something and not let this define me, not let it be, you know, overtake me. Not, you know, and I still had bad days. I mean, I'm not going to say that my recovery was hard. My healing was hard. I've had days where I've cried days where I haven't been able to get out of bed, but those days are fewer and far between now. And I think As time has gone on, I've gained strength and I've gained power over my story. It's become that it's my story to have now and I can define how it's going to happen now. Nobody else is in control of that. And I think that's kind of what you're looking for when you've you've been through, I think, um, a traumatic event like I've been through and you've had, you know, you've been sexually assaulted. You've had that power taken away from you. I think you're looking for you've had that control taken away from you. And I think you're looking for a way to take that control back and you can live through anything and make it through and, and live a happy life. And, um, it can happen. And I truly, if I can be that inspiration, if I can be that person that can show you that it can, I want to be that because, um, it has happened for me. If you want more information on Holly's house, you can go to her website, ksat.com. We'll have a link to her book there as well. And we want to thank you guys for being here with us for another episode of Texas Crime Stories. When we come back, Erica's voice will be a lot better. 